0: For those of you that need a little context for that, um, Brian Farley is actually the mayor of Duncanville. (laughs) Self appointed, but still the mayor of Duncanville. I am glad to be here again with you this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those to 2 Peter. The plan today is to, in this first sermon, to, to make our way through 2 Peter, and in the second sermon, to make our way through the last chapter. Um, of 2nd Peter and that would be chapter 3. First sermon will be chapter 2. So 2nd Peter chapter 2 is where, where we will begin this morning. 2nd Peter chapter 2. And I will read chapter 2 in its entirety and then we will come back through. This is the word of the Lord for us today, brothers and sisters. their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when, he, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs in mist driven by storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved." For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. If you would join me in prayer. Father, we thank You for another opportunity to gather this morning in Your name. This chapter of Your Word has a definite tone. It has weight, it carries with it burden, but it has very clear warning, very clear instruction, very clear words as to what we should look for, not only in others, but in our own hearts and minds. And so, Father, I pray this morning that You, by the power of Your Spirit and through the preaching of Your Word, that the believers in this place would be edified and encouraged in You. That we would be warned and we would appreciate and understand and have gratitude that You in Your grace and kindness have warned us. But, Father, if there is one that's here today that has fallen victim to this false teaching, that right now currently is believing in something that is false and that could ultimately lead to their destruction. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, I pray that You would open their eyes to the truth. Father, that You would give life to their dead soul and that they would see the fallacy in the air and what they have willfully believed. And so, Father, this morning, just like Friday night and just like yesterday, we are in desperate need of Your help anything meaningful or eternal is going to happen, it's going to be because of you. And so Father, I pray that you would be with us as we look to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's in Christ's name. Amen. As you probably noticed, and as I prayed, this this chapter of 2 Peter is heavy. It has a definite tone. Um, I'm not a comedian anyway. I'm not good at jokes. I can rarely pull them off. If I do, it's by accident. But you're not going to hear any today. Um, this, this is a serious passage of Scripture that deserves our attention. It deserves our time. It deserves us not just hearing a message from this chapter of Scripture. It, it deserves our commitment and meditation and going back to and to be reminded of the dangers and the reality of false teaching. False teaching is not just something that we like to point out and like to debate about and like to talk about in our echo chambers. False teaching is a very real and present reality and danger to the souls around us. So this is very important. This, This is going to have a tone. It's going to have burden. But by God's grace, I pray that we see clearly what the Lord would have us to. And so we're going to do some things. For those of you that take notes, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to try to identify these false teachers. We're going to look at some things that identify these false teachers from 2 Peter. Next, we're going to look at these false teachers and their strategy, how they go about, how they scheme against us. And then lastly, we're going to look at their judgment. First, we're going to identify and define these false teachers. Both Greek words for false teachers and false prophets used in 2 Peter have the prefix pseudo. Pseudo means a sham, not genuine or fake. And so, this is important just out of the gate for us to understand as Christians is that these false teachers are pseudo teachers, which means that they're going to have a a feel or even maybe a sense of the truth. They're going to look the part most of the time. They're going to sound the part most of the time. They're going to know what to say. They're going to know what to carry. They're going to know what to put on their name tags that would catch our attention. They they are pseudo. They're not just going to come at believers in the first century or in 2024 with this obvious, dark evil. We recognize that. We see that. We would... Put this up and say, get away from me. We know that it's evil. And so these have crept in according to Jude chapter, or, or Jude verse 11 and also the language of Peter that these false teachers are pseudo-teachers that have crept in. They sort of snuck in and you would go, well, how would they do that? Well, they would have to be disguised. So they're pseudo. They're, they're a sham. They're a fake. They're not the real thing. If you look at verse 1, Verse 1 says these false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. If you notice in verse 13, the middle part of verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. This is what I want you to see. Reveling in their deceptions. The first thing to understand about these false teachers is that they are influencers. They're very good at influencing, they're influencers, they're pseudo teachers, pseudo prophets that have set out to influence and they are in the first century, they are among the people, they've secretly crept in and they are set out they have set out to introduce destructive heresies or destructive opinions. and these teachers and their followers, if, if you notice towards the end where he gives the warning of those who have heard the word and then somehow In some way, they have um, acknowledged the Word, not in their hearts, but intellectually, so much so that it maybe has even changed the way that they live their lives, so much so that we wouldn't even necessarily recognize them as false teachers, but as Jesus taught us, that we will recognize them eventually by their fruit. And so a good word to understand in regards to these type false teachers is that they are considered apostates. An apostate is someone who has made a profession of faith but turns from that profession in word and or deed. Now to be clear, this profession of faith this profession of faith was not ever genuine. In John 1 John chapter 2 if you want to turn a couple of pages to your right. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 the apostle speaks to this. He says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So there are some that have gone out from this body of believers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, this is to serve as a warning for us in the in the way that we relate to others, but, but I really don't like to start there. I like to sort of see this as a warning and a danger for my own heart and my own soul. If, if I'm looking back to some profession of faith for hope and assurance and confidence that I won't fall away, then I'm not looking back far enough. The only place to look back for hope and assurance and confidence that we will be kept forever is 2,000 years ago to Calvary's cross that we just sang about. And so we're not looking for hope in anything that we have necessarily done. The profession of faith is necessary and it's right, but it's just that. It's not necessarily an indicator of what's in our heart. What's an indicator of what's in our heart is the fruit that is produced over time. And so these these apostates, according to Peter, their state is actually worse. He says it would have been better for them. Think about this. Feel the weight of the privilege that we have to sit in a place like this week after week and sometimes day after day after day and to hear the Word of God preached, to be able to read the Word of God, to live in a country where we have the freedoms to have the Word of God on our phones and our back pockets and whatever kind of Bible, goat skin, lamb skin. I don't know what all kind of Bibles are out there now. We have that privilege, and Peter says, "If you turn away, it's better for you to have never known the way." And so these prove that their faith was never genuine. Essentially, it's this, friends, to simplify: it, apostasy is worse than ignorance. So they're influencers; these false teachers. They're also they're motivated by greed. Therefore, they fabricate their words. Look at verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now this greed, we typically think of what? Money, right? But this is all kinds of greed. They're greedy for power. They're greedy for influence. They're greedy for praise. They're greedy for the glory that only God deserves. And so what they do is they fabricate their words and they speak in a way. And brothers and sisters, Todd and Brian and Jacob and I were talking about this yesterday at Brian's house, a lot of them are really good at it. Some of the most gifted communicators of our day and of the first century are false teachers. They have silver tongues. They can sway us. They can manipulate us. They can turn us. They can bring us in. They can convince us. But they're motivated by greed. Not only are they motivated by greed, they they boldfully and willfully blaspheme aspects of the spiritual. You notice that in verse 10, in the middle part of verse 10. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And and, and I think it's at this point that most of those that have eyes to see begin to understand that something's terribly wrong. I'm sure you guys have experienced this, but we have received people that have come from other type congregations and churches from all over the place. And and a lot of times when there is a false teacher that's in the pulpit, the believers eventually see it by God's grace. Now they may have crept in, they may have been unnoticed, they may not be something that they notice out of the gate, but eventually when this kind of blasphemy, this bold and willful blaspheming the aspects of the spiritual or the glorious ones, they notice that, but that is another identifier. Next, they also revel which is a word that just means showing off. So they're, they're, they're sort of joyful and they're happy in their luxury and power. Look at verse 13. Again, the middle part. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And so you couple that with greed and you think about financial gain. And, and this might not have been as applicable in the first century as it is for us. But most of you know, and I'm sure that you're aware, that you can turn on your TV this morning and find someone on there that is reveling and boasting in their luxury. And they've coupled it with this pseudo-gospel and reality, and they manipulate people into giving more money so that the people can be blessed, which in turn those false teachers motivated by greed are reveling in literally showing off everything that all the weaker people are giving them. They revel in their luxury and in their power. Verse 14 lets us know, as we continue to identify these false teachers, they are committed to sexual sin. Look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Some of this sexual sin is open. Some of this sexual sin that they are committed to, these false teachers, is private. But these false teachers, in some capacity, either publicly or privately, are always perverting, or, we know this, we are seeing this, redefining God's design for sex, for gender, and for family. Brothers and sisters, we are seeing with our own eyes And in our schools, in some cases, an all-out assault on God's creative order as it relates to gender, sex, and family. It's a scheme, and false teachers, false teachers are running with it. I don't want the false teachers to out-evangelize the true teachers. They seem loud now, though, don't they? It seems like the loudest voices that we're hearing, the most passionate voices that we're hearing, are the ones that are false. But that is another identifier of these false teachers. They're committed to sexual sin and sexual confusion, and they will assault, and they are assaulting God's creative order and God's, and this is an important word, especially for you teenagers, God's design. God's design in sex. God's design in marriage. God's design in gender. God's design in family. God's purpose for our good and for His glory. Verse 15 lets us know that these false teachers, they also love the reward of sin And he references an Old Testament story that I don't have time to go into, but I encourage you to read Numbers 22, 23, and 24 to be freshened up on this story of Balaam. But another identifier is like Balaam, these false teachers love the reward of sin. Vulnerable people are deceived into thinking that we want, or the vulnerable people, that they want what the false teachers have. Just a little context on Balaam. He was a prophet from Mesopotamia. Balaam was willing to use his God-given talents for illicit purposes. Even though he knew Balak was God's enemy, he tried to tell his prophet, I'm sorry, he tried to sell his prophetic gifts to help him. When that didn't work, Balaam counseled Balak on the most effective way to weaken Israel. And and this was the most effective way that Balak could weaken Israel. It was through seduction, using Moabite and Midianite women to tempt the Israelites into sexual relationships and into pagan rituals. And he was successful. He seduced them. And the way that he seduced them is by confusing the Israelites to think, essentially, what their flesh desired and what the world offered and what Balak could offer in these Midianite women was better than God's promises and what God offered. That was the deception. In Jude, verse 11, it says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Did you notice that? They abandon themselves. Why? They're deceived because they think that what they're going after is better than what they have in the Lord or what the Lord has promised. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion." One trait of false teachers in the church is that they attempt to turn Christian liberty into licentiousness. Or to say it another way, and Paul dealt with this in his letter to the Romans, to think that because there's grace, then that must mean that we can sin. And so as long as there's always grace there, then we can continue to sin because there's always going to be enough grace, which is a gross misunderstanding of the grace of God. It's a misappropriation of the grace of God. It's a misapplication of the grace of God. Someone who thinks with this antinomian view and that because there's grace, I can do whatever I want to do and grace is always going to cover me. Brothers and sisters, to be clear, they do not understand grace and they have not trusted the gospel. They just haven't. And they haven't read 2 Peter, have they? <laughs> they haven't. Grace is not a license to sin, but this is sort of Balaam's way, Balaam's doctrine in, in, into tricking people, deceiving people into thinking that what they can gain from what he's offering, what the false teacher is offering, what the reward is for this particular sin is better than what they have. And he brings them in. It's this attitude, this sort of doctrine of Balaam, if you will, that, that one can be fully cooperative with the world and still serve God. In practical terms, Balaam's doctrine is the view that Christians can or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, for the sake of money, for the sake of sexual gratification, or for the sake of... Of personal gain. It's this attitude that treats sin as it's, it's no big deal. Or that it's no issue at all. Now let's recap. I want to let you know up front that this one's going to be a little bit longer than the others. I promise you that we'll get to the food. We will. We will. But, but I really want to spend the majority of our time here. Identifying false teachers. They are influencers. They are motivated by greed. They boldly and willfully blaspheme the glorious one. They revel in their luxury. They are committed to sexual sin. Like Balaam, they love the reward of sin. Now we're going to shift to see their strategy, their strategies are also listed here in Second Peter. We see it in verse two. We see it in verses eighteen and nineteen. The first strategy that I notice here in Second Peter is that they, the false teachers, play on felt needs. Look at verse two, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So many will follow their sensuality, like their emotion, their appeal. What sort of and, and, and this is pop psychology language, like. What connects us, right? What, what, what draws me to this person? What vibe did they put off? False teachers are really good at vibing. And they play on the felt needs. The sensual, in our vernacular, almost always is sexually oriented. But, and that was part of it, as we've seen. But it's not the only part of it. It's not limited to sexual misconduct or obsession. It speaks to them playing on their feelings, playing on their circumstances, which means they would and can exploit an individual's emotional, physical, mental, or spiritual vulnerability. I forget which president, I think it was Barack Obama that said, never waste a good crisis. It's that mentality. It's that idea. As they see someone who is physically mentally, emotionally, spiritually, vulnerable, what they see is an opportunity not to encourage and to build and to edify, but to bring them in to their false teaching. Another part of their strategy is that they promise freedom. Look at verse 19. It says, they promise them freedom. Freedom from what? What? I think there's two sides of this, and I've already spoken to the one side of it. Freedom from the bondage of obedience, right? That's how a false teacher would communicate, hey, there's grace, so you can be free. You have Christian liberty, and Christian liberty means that you can live however you want to live. You can do whatever you want to do because of what Christ has already done for you. And and I've already addressed that. that That's false. But then there's another side of this as, as I think about this freedom, and I think about the context of the Christians that this was written to, that these Christians are in exile. They're living in a time of great tension. These Christians in the first century, they're hated by many. Persecution abounds. And it all points to, you go, why are they suffering? Why are they persecuted? Why are they ostracized? Some of them from their homes. Many of them from their workplaces. Many of them from their families. Why is it? What's the reason? Because of their belief and profession of Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. And so he's writing to Christians who are suffering great persecution, and the sole reason for that persecution is because of what they believe about Jesus. And so think about it with me in in that sense. These are normal people, they have families, there's kids to feed. They've been ostracized from their jobs because of the persecution, because of their faith in Christ. They've been pushed out of where they live and where they're comfortable and where their history is and where their culture is. There's probably some newlyweds among them that just, man, I just want to have at least a couple of years of happy marriage. They're living in great tension and I'm sure that they feel trapped. So think about it. If, If a false teacher comes in with a little charisma... And promises them freedom. Says, hey look, you can be free. You can be free. This gospel call is it's not really a full surrender. You don't have to believe everything the Bible says. You don't have to obey everything that the Bible commands. God wants you to be happy. God wants you comfortable. God would never lead you to something that brought you pain. God's not happy with the fact that you're being persecuted, so look. Just relax. Take a deep breath. If you do what I tell you to do, you can, you can live at peace. Just bow to Caesar. Just don't say Jesus' name publicly. You can be a Christian. Just do it in your home. Like I wonder if false teaching is where this whole idea or notion that our faith can be private came from. Just, just, just do it in your home. You don't have to make a big deal about it. God wants you to live a happy, quiet life. Think of how tempting that would have been. He's playing on their sensuality and He's promising them freedom. This freedom that's promised... Peter is explicitly clear what the reality is. Look back down at verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are what? Slaves. Slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Sin promises us freedom, sin promises us happiness. Sin promises and promises and promises and promises and these false teachers promote these promises but the truth of Scripture and the truth is some of you have lived long enough, some of us have lived long enough to know that we've gone after what our flesh desires. We thought that it was going to bring us freedom but what it ultimately brought us was more shame, more guilt, more bondage and to use scriptural language, we are enslaved to whatever overcomes us. Sin does not follow through with its promises. It promises freedom and it brings bondage. I, I want to say that in a way that it just sort of drives into your head. Especially teenagers. Like, sin promises us freedom, but it's a lie. It's a lie. It only brings the exact opposite. It brings more more slavery, and more bondage. Another part of their strategy for these false teachers, according to verse 14, is they pray on the unsteady soul. The weak soul. <coughs> Plain and simple. I think this is probably self-explanatory. But those that are immersed in the Word and know the Word... These false teachers are not going to be as effective in your life. So if you want to know, what's my weapon? It's the Word. You don't have to understand all of it. What this is pushing to is a commitment to it. To use the Word of God for what it is, is our final authority. So what we hear on the outside, we bring it to the Word. If it lines up to the Word, we rightfully submit to it. If it doesn't line up with the Word we rightfully reject it the weak soul the unsteady soul is a soul that is not committed to and not serious about the word of god it might look strong but it's weak i found this interesting that these false teachers because i don't think it's always the case it certainly begins the case but evidently these false teachers that they act intentionally look at verse 14 they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice steady souls. Listen, they have hearts what? Trained. Trained in greed. Some formally trained. I don't know how familiar you are with seminaries. There are a lot of quote-unquote Christian seminaries that are off the rocker. They are training young pastors. Some of them who show up there with a Eagerness and a desire to learn the Word of God and the pastorate and the ministry, and they want to grow in that. And there are professors in Christian seminaries that are enticing their young souls and influencing their weak and unsteady souls with these type heresies. These guys and these ladies, they are trained. They know what they're doing. I don't think everybody that speaks something false understands what they're doing. It's not what I'm saying. But I wanted you to see the intentionality, the purpose, the schemes. This isn't something that just sort of came up. Todd and I were talking before the service. False teachers were in the first century. These people saw Jesus, like a, after Acts chapter 2, when the, when the church is birthed, when the Holy Spirit comes down, it was like false teachers were just sitting there waiting. Waiting to pollute true biblical gospel doctrine. And so our enemy has a scheme, and they act intentionally. Another thing that they do in regards to their strategy is they forsake the right way. Verse 14 says the same. False teachers within the church will often subtly distort the clear teaching of God's Word. And I think the best scriptural way to illustrate this would to quote the serpent. Did God really say, These false teachers, they, they also softened, they softened the hard edges of what the Bible says. They water it down. They shy away from what the Bible clearly is telling us to do. They make light of sin. They make the gospel about you. And what you'll never hear a peep of out of these false teachers is repentance. But to make it more modern, I think I need to... Correct this in that you won't hear anything about repentance from these modern day false teachers unless you're too mean. To quote Shaolin, it seems like today the only heresy is to say there's a heresy. So you have to repent if you say something that's too offensive or too mean. Now listen, don't, don't be a jerk. Let's not be mean for the sake of being mean. But if we don't stand up, who's going to? If we don't stand on the promises in the truth of Scripture, brothers and sisters, who is going to? And the vast majority of the confrontations of false teachers in the Bible would be deemed too mean in the vast majority of evangelicalism today. We have a clear command to stand up against false teaching. Peter illustrates this in verse 17. These are waterless springs, these false teachers, and mist driven by a storm. I want you to imagine with me just a second imagine that it's, it's, it's the 4th of July in Alabama, and it's hot, and you're in a desert, and you're thirsty. And you look across the dunes and you don't see anything and you just keep on going because that's all you know to do is either sit here and burn up or it's to just keep going to hope I see water. And you get to the top of one of those dunes and you you look down and you see some green. And you know what green means? Green means water. So there must be something, some sort of stream or brook or something that's down there that can quench my thirst. And you make a beeline to that stream. Imagine you get there and it is in fact green and luscious but you get to it to find that it doesn't have water. Peter says as it is with these false teachers. You're thirsty and you should be but you see what you think is going to provide you water. What he wants us to do is he wants us to get there and realize there's no water. So leave. (laughs) And those of you that farm, gardeners, man, how, how sweet is it when you see that rain cloud coming? About the same time of the year in this state, right? In this region. But how frustrating is it when that rain cloud comes and, and it's just a little bit of a mist, just enough to sort of boil the leaves on the plants? Peter says, likewise, it is for these false teachers. They promise all these things. You think they're going to provide. You think they're going to come through. But actually, they're just like a mist when you really need a heavy rain. Lastly is their judgment. Verses 4 through 10 speak plainly of their judgment. And just to kind of give some highlights of that. If God did not spare the angels. Now think about the weight of this friends. If God did not spare the angels and those in the ancient world. What makes us think, if we are thinking, what would make them think that God would spare these false teachers and their followers? Peter is emphatically clear, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to let us know that these false teachers and their followers will be judged. Look at the last part of verse 3, and I'm going to read through these quickly. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Verse 12. The end of it. Will also be destroyed in their destruction verse 13 suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing verse 17 the last part of it for them the gloom friends please don't just read this Like, like think of the reality for the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved 20 and 22 it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness then after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them and he illustrates with a proverb that says the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire these false teachers that they will be judged and they will be judged accordingly and friends it will be harsh But we should not think that it would be too harsh. If we think that it would be too harsh, it's because we have lost sight of or never understood the holiness of our God. God is infinitely holy. And any sin against His infinite holiness deserves exactly what He demands. It deserves death and it deserves to be punished. Two realities as we close. first one is this. We are in danger of being enticed. I don't think God would have given us this scripture if there wasn't a real possibility that we could be deceived or that we could be enticed. So much so, specifically so, and I've already mentioned this, but going back to verses 20, 21, and 22, so much so that there is a reality, a sobering reality, that we can hear the Word of God, we can acknowledge the Word of God, and somehow we can still reject and ultimately walk away from the Word of God. One of the most, if I'm honest, frightening passages in all of the Bible is what Jesus prophesized the last day will be like. That at that last meal, there will be some that are on the outside wondering, what happened? I prophesied in Your name. I performed miracles in Your name. And our Lord Jesus rightfully, He will say to them, depart from Me, for I never knew you. Think about the reality of the fact that we might be sitting shoulder to shoulder with people that will be on the outside, but think they're saved. So there's a category in the Bible. There's those who know that they're not saved. There's those who know that they are saved. And then there's those that think that they're saved, but they're not. And they're not And that's not necessarily to make us doubt our salvation. That's not what it's about. But it is meant to cause us to go, hey, there's a possibility that we're enticed. There's a possibility that we're deceived. And so here's what I do. Here's a good way to kind of think through this. Where's your hope today? I'm not talking about where your hope was when you were eight years old at VBS. I'm sure that was a wonderful, awesome experience. And I'm not negating that at all. But the most important question to ask ourselves is what do we believe about Jesus Christ today? What do you believe about Him today? Do you trust Him and Him alone? As a young pastor, I wish wish someone would have given me a little heads up on the pain of watching the parable of the sower play out. First, again, I apply it to myself and, and realize that like I, I have, I can, I can, and I want you to think like we need to think this way, like with under the theology of God's sovereignty in all things. But I think it's helpful for us the fact that it is a possibility that we should guard our own hearts and souls. But what's painful to watch is to see those what we thought were brothers and sisters in Christ that we've heard the gospel from to almost seemingly out of nowhere just walk away from the faith, walk away from their families. It's, it's painful. And I, I, I underestimated. I underestimated the pain. Like teaching that parable is, is wonderful. It's great. But seeing it play out, seeing that seed shoot up and then get choked out Seeing that seed shoot up and then get burned up by the sun or get snatched away by a bird, it's, it's, it's painful to see. And listen, if your soul isn't currently vulnerable to false teaching, there are souls around you that are vulnerable to false teaching. And if we don't care, nobody else is going to care. And what it seems is that a lot of the false teachers care more about those souls than we do. And they can just bring them in. By the masses. And we just sit back mad about it. Look at all those people, Foss. That's just typical of our day. Friends, this isn't new. This is an ancient text warning about the very things that we experience. When you come to a warning in the Bible, do you ignore it because of grace? Or do you see it as grace? And repent and obey. Lastly, hell is real, and God sends people there. The final, the final wrath of God will be terrible, indescribable pain forever and ever. And as you consider the word pictures the New Testament uses for hell, please don't commit the error of saying, um, well, that's just symbolic. Symbols are less than reality. Did you catch what I said? If it's symbolic, the reality will be worse than the symbol. Peter doesn't let him think that way because he says very real acts, historical acts that none of them would deny. you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? That's what he's saying. you remember Sodom? Do you remember the flood? This God judged rightly and harshly and He punished wickedness. And the only reason He hasn't done it yet today, the only reason we stand here today is that God in His grace and His kindness has restrained from showing His rightful wrath to sinners that have sinned against Him. Jesus spoke more graphically than anyone else in the Bible about hell. Jesus spoke more often than anyone else in the Bible about hell. And the reason the Bible speaks of people being thrown into hell is because no one willingly goes there. People don't choose hell, friends. They choose sin. Nobody gets to the lake of fire and does a swan dive. They're thrown in. And if we're deceived into thinking that sin promises freedom, we're choosing sin. We're not thinking about or haven't been warned of or don't know of the consequence or the reality of what's coming if we don't turn from that sin and follow the way of Jesus and trust and believe and repent in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter Peter does not want people he loves in this place forever. And I thank God this morning that as a hell-deserving sinner, that Jesus Christ, my Savior, who by the way is the only one who willingly jumped in the fire, became a curse for me and suffered hellish pain and separation to deliver... Me from the wrath to come. This judgment from God is avoidable. But only in one way and through one person. And that's through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember Peter's... This is Peter's last will and testament. And so essentially, Peter's saying, while there's still time, (laughs) repent and believe the gospel. The ark door is still open. There's this eerie verse to me in Genesis chapter 6 where it says, And Jehovah shut them in. Because when God shuts the door of grace, the door of grace is closed. And once that door of grace is closed and the waters begin to rise, what they're thinking, those on the outside, they're not thinking, boy, I was right. They realize the falsity of their thinking. So friends, if, if if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, we still live in an age by God's grace that the door is open. Would you come to Christ? He welcomes sinners, just like me and just like you. And what Jesus Christ provides is the only way of true salvation. Also what Jesus Christ provides is the promise of being our good shepherd. That He will keep us, He will feed us, He will protect us, He will guide us, and He will bring us safely home. So if you haven't trusted Christ today, I pray that you will look to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we transition and reflect through a time of music, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would drive deeply into our hearts and minds the truths that we've seen. With all the weight and burden that this text carries, there's only one place to find that release, and that's in You. For because of You, there is no condemnation for those who are in You. And so, Father, let us rejoice. And again, Lord, if there's one here that's deceived, but You cause them to believe. Give them new life and cause them to be born again. It's in Christ's name.